As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and with me today is a man who spent at least some of the weekend buying even more Eunice Musa stock. It's Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. <laughs> Hello, Taylor. Yes, I did. I don't know how you found out about that. I thought my investment portfolio was private. <laughs> Come on, man. I mean, you know, I, I just I always have a like a notification for when there's been a ma- massive amount of Eunice Musa stock purchased, and I then just assume <laughs> that you're the one doing it because I think he he had a very good game against Northern Ireland in the U.S.'s two to one win. Uh, I was I was pretty happy to see him playing and looking pretty solid. I was pretty happy to see a U.S. team winning. We're going to talk about that uh, senior team's two one win over Northern Ireland later on. But we're going to start on the more depressing foot. Uh, the USU 23s failed to qualify for the Olympics for the third time in a row. Eliminated 2-1 by Honduras. Honduras yet again. Honduras will now go to the Olympics along with Mexico. The United States will not. I want to hold off a little on what this means or how disappointed we are until we get through some of the basics of the game. Because there's been a lot of frustration with this result. I would say it was surprising to me that it was like kind of on par with Cuba, but I think when the U.S. fails to qualify for the World Cup and then fails again on the men's side, it becomes more of a, is this a big deal? We're not sure. I've had a lot of those texts of, is this a big deal? How big of a deal is this? And I think we can maybe talk about that a little bit later. As I said, right now, Joe, when you saw the U.S. lineup, the formation, kind of everything in the basic couple, in those opening couple minutes, how were you feeling? What were your sort of primary concerns or areas of concern about this game? So the U.S. come out in a 4-3-3. It's the same shape that Jason Christ has used all throughout this tournament. It's, mm-hmm. the, it's the same shape that Greg Berhalter has used for the most part, barring that Northern Ireland game and one friendly mm-hmm. in 2019. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> but it's a predictable shape with a largely predictable group of players. Mm-hmm. So I see the lineup, and I see Andres Perea and Jackson Ewell in the, mid- in the midfield together. And almost immediately it takes me into thinking, okay, Andres Perea is going to be the six and Ewell is going to be the eight because that's what we've seen in every minute that those two guys have been on the field. There is some interchanging, but it's largely Perea as the deeper midfielder and Ewell out to the left. And there are some issues with that in my mind against a team like Honduras where you can predict the U.S. are going to have a lot of the ball. So I, I see the lineup and that's a concern because I think Jackson Ewell brings more value 
deeper down on the field where he can get more touches and he doesn't have to wait for the ball to circulate over to his side for him to then get on the ball and make something happen. So that was a slight issue, but not entirely unpredictable. Then along that forward line, Georgi Mihailovic as a right winger, I guess this is when the game started, less when the lineup dropped, but Mihailovic as a, as a right winger was a little bit surprising to me, but the fact that he's in that forward line didn't surprise me a ton just because Benji Michel hadn't impressed and Sebastian Saucedo hadn't really impressed either. So you get Mihailovic and Lewis, the two guys who started uh, the first game as well. Mihailovic started in the central space, but it's, it's guys that Christ clearly believes in and they're more veteran players on this roster. And then Jesus Ferreira, I thought he was going to be a key player in this game because of how he can drop and help unlock a team. But uh, spoiler alert, we didn't really see that. We did not. So let's talk about a few of those players you've already mentioned there. Let's start with Jackson Yule, because we had this conversation in the preview for this game where you were thinking he made more sense as a six. I felt like we would probably see him in that sort of number eight, shuttling number 10 sort of situation role. Uh, and I'm with you that like he probably makes more sense deeper. He can connect some passes. He can make sure that everything is functioning as it should. I think that's probably where he feels most comfortable. And we did see Yule and Perea switching on multiple occasions. My feeling for yeah. why he would be further forward is because I think he's probably the most confident of the midfield options on the ball. And I think he's probably the one that Jason Christ thinks has the best passing vision, has the best passing range. My question for you then, Joe, is, is that fundamentally a problem from the start? Does this go to some of those lineup conundrums that we had talked about when we first saw the roster, when we first saw some of these formations and approaches that Jackson Ewell isn't a a 10. He's not necessarily your playmaker, your creator. So kind of putting him in a position where he needs to be, I feel like that kind of shows us automatically that maybe this isn't the strongest squad. We don't have the players that Jason Christ maybe would have liked to have had. And so this is him trying to put people in the best possible position for the team, if not necessarily for them as individuals. Yeah, this is Jason Christ trying to make the best with what he has in Mexico. But I, I feel like even the way I phrase that sentence makes it sound like Jason Christ is just working with the cards that were dealt to him. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that's not true, right? There are some real issues here with the squad that Jason Christ picked. And from day one, I've been in the camp that says Eric Williamson, Jeremy Abobasi, a lot of the guys that were left at home, they wouldn't make this team look entirely different. They wouldn't take... Uh, They they wouldn't take the squad and make them into world beaters. And they might have taken them and made them into World Cup, uh, into Olympic qualifying beaters. But we don't know that. (laughs) Right. I I think it is fair to say that you get a guy like Eric Williamson. Keaton Parks is the bigger one that I think would have made an impact in this group. And we haven't really talked about him as much in the past in this in this Olympic qualifying discussion. But if you have if you have more players who can who can slot in there at the number six, maybe it's James Sands. Who you're, are you comfortable mm-hmm. about having as the six? And then you really can let Jackson Yule do some work higher up the field. Or maybe you do bring Eric Williamson and Keaton Parks and have them as number eight options instead of Johnny Cardoso and Andres Perea. And you drop Yule back as the six. Uh, the one thing I'm confident in, I'm not as confident in would one player have completely changed the, the squad's makeup. I am confident, though, that if Jackson Yule had played as the six from the start of this game and even from, from the entirety of this tournament, He's done it a little bit, but not a ton. I'm confident that the U.S. would have looked some better with the ball. And I think that yeah. doesn't look good on Jason Christ in terms of the players he's brought in. It just doesn't. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree. And we're going to talk more about Jason Christ, more about the roster and everything else that happened here later on. But sticking with the the formation and especially with Jackson Ewell, I think you're right, Joe, because in that first game against Costa Rica, I had some frustrations with Jackson Ewell's lack of movement, but I saw lots of different clips and highlight reels about how he would make little adjustments, like just sort of like not make a run that didn't need to be made run. But that then allowed Jesus Ferreira to be open for like a more direct through ball. And so little decisions like that, I thought were really important in a game when he was being man marked. And in this game against Honduras, they did man mark. They basically sat either Rivas or Obregon, their two attackers. One would drop in and just sit on Perea the whole time. And I think they tried to do certain things. I think this is where that rotation of Perea would go to the left central midfield spot. Yule would drop in and try to kind of confuse Honduras a little bit and hopefully pull somebody with him. Honduras didn't really bite on that. And I think just swapping two players who are in relatively similar positions every single time, that's not going to throw any any wrenches into the Honduran plan. And I think they, Honduras, set up really, really well for this game. I think that they attacked the way they wanted to, but fundamentally defended the way they needed to to completely frustrate the U.S. I think they spotted some of those rotations of Mihailovic becomes a midfielder, Hassani Dotson becomes a right winger, uh, certainly the Perea-Yule rotation, and I think they set their players up in very specific positions to kind of block off huge amounts of the field. In, in some cases, it was one or two players nullified an entire side for the U.S., which should not be the case, but was the case. And I think we could see then... Once that happened, Christ didn't really have answers, didn't really have solutions for how to get people into better positions, how to get some openings, how to carve Honduras up. They got some chances when they were playing faster and on the front foot, but when they were trying to do those rotations and build out through Glad, maybe 20 yards from the midfield line, they didn't really have any answers. They ended up sort of playing it out of bounds or playing long balls over the top. Yeah, credit to Honduras for how they set up and how they approach this game. Taylor, thank you for detailing that. I want to look at the U.S. and how they tried to possess in this lineup. So in this 4-3-3, the center backs had a lot of the ball. The midfield was was interchanging at times. I appreciate that you highlighted that Dotson-Mihailovic swap. It was kind of interesting and something we've seen from the senior team in the past with Christian Pulisic starting inside and then rotating wide with Paul Areola or whoever it is. We've seen that pattern before, and so it was interesting to see it again. But when that's not working, when Honduras, their left side, is blocking off access to Asani Dotson, to Georgi Mihailovic, and even to Aaron Herrera, who's maybe a little bit wider and isn't a threat on the ball in the spaces that he was in. Mm-hmm. When Honduras is doing all of that and you have the ball on your right side, maybe it's Justin Glad that has the ball. The next thing you have to do, if you can't break through on that side, recycle possession to the other side. Move it over to Kessler. Move it over to Vines on the left side of the back line. Play up through Yule. Play into Ferreira on the left side. I mean, it's it's a simple concept of mm-hmm. if there's congest if there's congestment that's not a word but I'm making mm-hmm. it one on one side you bring it over to the other side and you attack where there's space. The issue was that in this game or one of the issues I thought was that things in possession for the United States were way too slow. They didn't move the ball with enough purpose and they didn't move off the ball with enough purpose outside of the first 15 minutes. I actually went back and rewatched this game as you did Taylor and I thought the first 15 minutes for the U.S. were were. Okay, they were they had some they had some attacking chances. They had some movement in the attacking half. Perea made a nice run out of midfield, got into the box. I mean, there were things happening at least. But as that first half wore on and as the second half, maybe not as much in the second half after the U.S. go down two to nothing. But especially in that last 30 minutes, things were too slow in possession. Hmm. They weren't sharp. They weren't crisp on the ball. Too many sloppy touches also contributing to that slow ball movement. The lack of real tempo hurts a team. It hurts any team when you're trying to break down a defensive block, a 4-4-2, a 4-4-1-1. But 
I mean, in this case, it, it really hurt the U.S. in this game specifically. Yeah, and I think this is where the rotation, the kind of changing the lineups from game to game becomes an issue because when you have a team that is set up to be very defensive, and I wouldn't say Honduras like sat in, they weren't ultra deep. I think the U.S. expected them to be, and to some extent that was part of the problem, is that I think the U.S. expected to be able to have Justin Glad pick up the ball, again, maybe 20 or 30 yards from midfield, and sort of drive forward, cross that midway point before ever really coming under pressure. And Honduras did a really good job of, of just making him think, just making him take an extra touch or slow down a little bit before he reaches midfield. And once he slows down and puts his foot on the ball and maybe plays a square pass to Kessler, now they can easily just set up and sort of move one yard or two yards over from one side to the other, and they block off lots yeah. of different options. And I think that was that was part of it for the United States. But I think then you didn't see the the sort of understanding of the system that I think maybe you would have gotten if you had more attack minded players in. But certainly if you'd had more like uh, consistency from game to game. And and the example of this for me is when you would have that Mihailovic Dotson switch. I felt like Mihailovic would sort of not jog, because I'm not trying to question his effort, but it was it was not a lung-busting sprint 30 yards back to find a little bit of space that maybe he can turn or maybe it ends up just being a, a ball back. But either way, he's made a run that Honduras have to adapt to. I felt like you would see him sort of jog into space, pointing at his feet, and he was kind of open, but not really, because there's two players in front of him or at least one player that makes that a riskier pass, a riskier proposition, if you're Glad or Kessler. And then once that pass isn't there, rather than continue to move into the midfield, continue to operate centrally, I felt like Mihailovic routinely would go back to that right wing spot where Dotson was now standing, and then you'd have two of them standing on the right wing, sort of jogging in the same space, not sure, and eventually Dotson comes back, and then the rotation happens again. And that really did happen in the first 10 minutes. I saw it happen twice, that they would have that rotation, Mihailovic drops into the middle, then it's not on, he goes back to where Dotson was, then he makes that run again, and it's still not on because they've sort of slowly reset. And I think it was... The team trying to do the same thing, trying to do the same rotations, but when it didn't work, rather than think, okay, what's the next step to this? How do we figure something out from here? It was sort of like, all right, well, let's try it on the other side and see. Oh, it didn't work there? Let's go back to the other side and see if it works there. I think the only outlier was when Jesus Ferreira would come into the midfield and would pull one of those midfielders out or just make them a little bit more uncomfortable. Because a lot of the time, if you had, uh, like, like, I forget who the the other two central midfielders were, but like uh, Rosales, for example. Rosales would sit on Yule. I think it was Rodriguez would sort of hold that defensive midfield spot. And only when Ferreira would come in would one of them have to move, would one of them have to slide over or start marking him. And then space would open up either for Ferreira or somebody else. But now that he has come back and is maybe 20 yards from the back line, you don't really have anything else going forward. And I think the U.S. ran into the patterns and the rotations not being enough. But if that's all you have, you sort of keep trying it with limited effect. And, and in this game, when Jesus Ferreira would drop, he was creating a plus one in midfield. He was creating mm. a numerical advantage because of how Honduras defended. Imagine they're in a 4-4-1-1 and the second one underneath that number nine would be marking Andres Perea or at least shadowing him. So that's that's a net even, right? There's no advantage there for either team. Honduras is using one player. The U.S. is using one player. Then in that 4-1-1, four, four, one, one, you still have two central midfielders if you're Honduras. And you just name them, Taylor, Rodriguez and Erosales, as those two central midfielders in, that, in the middle of that four-man midfield line. Those guys on paper are going to be stepping to Jackson Yule and Hassani Dotson, the U.S.'s two number eights. 
So you again, net even. There's no advantage there for the United States. When Jesus Ferreira drops in, all of a sudden you have a three v two. You gain an extra central midfielder. This is the whole. This is the whole reason behind that tactic in the first place. It's the whole reason behind the false nine. You create an advantage in midfield. The U.S. had that advantage. They were able to find Jesus Ferreira and use him and create that plus one in midfield. But after that, it all broke down. Right. The U.S. was either too rushed with their decision-making, trying to, trying to play a quick ball in behind the line for Jonathan Lewis or even Georgie Mihailovic or Dotson making a run out of midfield. And, and those passes either weren't accurate, they were overhit, they were underhit, or, or they just weren't the right decision at that time. Or it was a sloppy touch then that didn't allow the U.S. to come and move forward as a unit. There was a disconnect between the back line and the front line because the U.S. couldn't establish their tempo. They couldn't move forward as a group and move the ball quickly enough together or at least slowly enough together in in any way together to move forward into the attacking half and actually get numbers into the box and create chances using those numbers. And that's a problem we've seen in, in, in past games for the U.S. against Mexico. We saw it against the Dominican Republic. We saw it probably against Costa Rica as well, but that's a little fuzzier for me right now. But the fact that the U.S. had pro- approaches, they had mm-hmm. patterns like you detailed, Taylor, but they really weren't able to use those effectively in this game at all. Yeah, and this is where I, I go back to, I think, when you have a coach in Jason Kreiss who is trying to do an approximation of another manager's system, he's trying to do what Berhalter is doing at senior level because we want everybody, kind of every youth team playing the same way as the senior team so everybody gets used to it. I understand that idea, but I think you're then asking Jason Christ to sort of figure things out in that moment. And I personally don't think that he was able to do that. I don't know if that's like a long-term thing. I don't want to jump to the conclusions of he's just not a good enough coach to do that sort of tinkering in the moment. But I I think you're absolutely right, Joe, that the idea there is to create that overload. It's to get Ferreira on the ball, and now you've got a 3v2, and now Honduras have to close down. But if one player steps out, that opens up space, and now a U.S. player can run into that. And that takes two players, and now there's the whole left side open. And what what I saw instead of that was a team in the U.S. that I feel like had been prepped for this team is going to be defensive, they're going to sit deep, and they're going to counter. So when you get a chance, you've got to try to take it. You've got to try to seize that opportunity. And to your point, Joe, that's where I think some of the individuality comes in. That's where some of the sort of, I'm just going to try to run through. I'm going to try to get on the end of this one. I'm just going to try to play this ball in. I felt like the U.S., when they would finally get to Ferrer, when there would be a moment where they could build and have sustained possession, almost always it was one or two more passes and then they'd lose the ball. Be- or And sometimes yeah. that was a shot that was blocked. Sometimes it was a shot that became a corner. Sometimes it was just a turnover. But there wasn't a, okay, we've bypassed that line. Now Honduras are going to scramble. So now we can kind of move players into new positions and make them scramble even more. It felt more so like, oh, we, we got them. Let's go now. Let's go. And they didn't really have them because Honduras still had four players behind the ball. That's not necessarily the most like... uh advantageous situation especially when your number nine has dropped in 20 yards to try to help the midfield so I'm, i'm with you that we didn't see the u.s sort of in a number of positions in a way that they needed to be to be successful in this game to have opportunities and i think we i'm skipping a little bit uh over that first goal just to say that at halftime i think the change for salcedo uh salcedo comes on mihailovic comes off uh, I'm I'm not that surprised by that, but I also think it it betrays the idea that Christ thought, oh, it's just Mihailovic not understanding. It's him being a little bit slow, and you can tell that I think the first thing Salcedo does is full on sprint twenty yards back to to link up play, and I think he's been told make those runs, be aggressive, find the ball, make things happen, and he tries to do that. I would argue 
he somewhat tries to do that too much in the lead up to the second goal, but I'm jumping ahead. I just wanted to emphasize that I felt like Jason Kreis in that first half wasn't quite sure how to fix things and ended up landing on it was the individual. If I change the individual, then the system will work as opposed to Honduras have set up specifically to deal with this system, which is what Costa Rica did, what the Dominican Republic did a little bit, even what Mexico did. And I think he wasn't really prepared for that. So that's kind of my read on the first half. Should we talk goals, Joe, or do you want to talk anything else about Christ or tactics? Let's talk goals. I'm guessing okay. we'll circle back to some tactical things correct. or some personnel things later on, mm-hmm. but but we can move to goals for now. All right. So with the goal, I would say a, a couple different things here. Uh, first off, it's just a terrific play from Obergon from start to finish uh, because it's yes. it's the U.S. pressing high. They feel like, OK, we've got Honduras kind of boxed in in their own corner. We can press. We can make them uncomfortable. Maybe we can force something. Maybe we can kind of catch them in transition and get an opportunity. Instead, in that moment, they allow Honduras to play out and they not just like a, a frantic booted booting the ball clear, but I forget who it is who plays the ball forward in the beginning. But he has the time and space to pick out uh, Oberon, who's dropped in. And now Perea hasn't moved with him. So Perea is maybe 20 yards central. So now Kessler has to step and try to slow things down. And Kessler, I think, recognizes he's about to be turned. He'll be beaten for pace. Then it's a 2v1 at best situation with Justin Glad back there, and so he goes for that foul. But right there, you can see Honduras, even when they should be really uncomfortable because the U.S. has put them under immense pressure, they still find a way to pass their way out. And I thought they did that really well in the first half, even if sometimes it ended up with them just clearing it long. At the very least, they tried a few passes to pull the U.S. in, to pull them out of position, and this is another example of that. But Obregon winning that ball after having probably sprinted back 30 yards to be an outlet option and then turning and getting that free kick. And I believe also drawing the yellow card, which I think factors into some of Kessler's performance in the second half. All of that, excellent work. And then we have the free kick, Joe. And then we have the free kick. Yeah, so Honduras have that free kick in the attacking half. They put a cross in and it's Henry Kessler again. And Kessler clears it. Honduras recover the ball. So they have the ball again in the attacking half. And they play... This long diagonal into the box to the back post. It is a beautiful ball. It is perfect. If you if you Googled Mm -hmm. how do you hit a diagonal in soccer, I'm I'm guessing many people don't Google that. But if you did, Mm -hmm. uh, that clip should come up. It won't, but it should. It's a beautiful ball to the back post and left back. Honduran left back Wesley Dacos makes this this perfectly timed delayed run at the back post. He's just hoping he's going to get on the ball. And when the ball arrives on a dime right to his head. He makes that header back across the face of goal. Obregon gets his thigh on it. David Ochoa nearly keeps it out, but Obregon pushes it back over the line as he's kind of tumbling into the goal. It is a ridiculously good goal from Honduras mm-hmm. that had a ridiculously small chance of happening in yep. the first place. But that being said, I do not want to to take away from this goal from Honduras because it was fantastic. It absolutely was. And I went back to figure out, like, does Rodriguez know what he's doing here. Like, obviously, it's a driven ball. He's aiming for that sort of back post, like 12 yards out. Goalkeeper's not going to come for it, but you cause uncertainty. And watching it again, uh, I thought it I thought it was uh, Maldonado, but if you're saying it's Decas, I will, I will take you at it, Joe. He spots that run, and he recognizes, because it's a run from deep, and that's what he's aiming for. He's aiming for the runner, not the players who are already sort of stretching the U.S. line, and it's the runner that he finds with that long diagonal. So I thought that vision was amazing. The header back across and the awareness to do that as opposed to trying to chest it and getting a shot or something like that. That's a great decision. And then just the presence there from uh, Obregon to to 
get the opportunity, a good save by Ochoa, and then kind of bundles it in. I think it was deserved for some of the fouls Obregon had. But I thought all of that was excellent. I think you're absolutely right that that was a great goal from Honduras. The two things that I wanted to highlight here both involve Jonathan Lewis. Because when Honduras have that free kick, they don't just play it into the box. They play it down the line for Rivas. And they do that because Jonathan Lewis is just squared up to the free kick. Rivas is to Lewis's left. The goal is to Lewis's right. He's facing the, the Honduran taker and the Honduran goal. And he's just flat-footed. So when the ball is kind of chipped over him for Rivas, he has to turn and sprint backwards. But that's why he's a little bit slow to react and I think is then not able to cut out that ball. As you said, it then has to be cleared. It goes back to Rodriguez, who then drills that ball in. And this is the second thing with Lewis. And I think part of this was because Melendez, the hunter and right back, uh, had been bombing up and down that wing whenever the opportunity was on. But he really was... I think that I always end up using the T-1000 from Terminator 2, but I'm going to use it again. Like That was him in that as soon as Honduras lost the ball, he sprinted 30 yards back to get into shape. As soon as they won the ball, he would sprint. But as soon as it was, like even if it looked like it was going to be miscontrolled, he was back. Like He was so disciplined in his running, but because he was so aggressive getting forward, Jonathan Lewis routinely had to track back. And I think Lewis just ends up really tired. I think he's not able to stay forward and not be an outlet the way he wanted to be. I think he has to track so much that I think he's tired here. Maybe he's catching his breath when that free kick is taken, which is maybe why he's flat-footed. But now he's sprinting again. He's trying to make a play. After the cross goes in and it's cleared, the U.S. aggressively steps. Jonathan Lewis does not. I think Aaron Herrera would have kept all the Honduran players on onside anyway, but Jonathan Lewis definitely did. He's about five yards behind the line such as it was. And I think those two moments, I think, show the difference in discipline between the two teams, that Honduras were drilled and ready and knew exactly what they needed to do, and everybody was was really willing to run their absolute socks off and draw some blood, get bloody, get fouled, get kicked, kick some people. I think Honduras did exactly what they needed to do. And I think that just little, those little moments of switching off, of not being quite ready to go, I think that's what cost the United States on the day. No, I totally agree with you, Taylor. Or at least it's one of the things that cost the yeah, U.S. on the day. True. I, I think I think we see it on this goal and even we see it on the second goal as mm-hmm. well. It's a really... Difficult situation. Are you ready to move to the second goal or or do you want to stay here for a little bit longer? I think I'm ready to move to the second goal other than to say that, as we've talked about in the past, when you're conceding a goal this late into the first half and it's the first goal conceded, it's now 1-0. Again, it changes the game plan because instead of it being, okay, it's 0-0, some things weren't working, we weren't able to break them down, here's what we've got to change to make that happen. Now you've got a game plan for okay, we've got to pull one back first and then try to get a winner. So we've got to defend a little bit better, but also a change the attacking approach. It just gives you more stuff to have to talk about at halftime. I'm a big believer in the idea that like three to five bullet point things is what you want at halftime. You can talk to people on an individual level about individual things they can do, but broadly speaking, you want the team to come out with the idea of this didn't work, we're doing this instead. That wasn't as effective, we're doing this. Because, Joe, I don't know if you've experienced this, but when you have a whole bunch of people talking talking about what's not working and if it's at halftime and you don't have that captain or they don't have that coach who's telling you this isn't working, this isn't working, everybody's talking and you get side conversations, you get three people thinking we've got to play faster and three people thinking we've got to play slower. And I think having to have more messages and more points at halftime for Jason Christ, who I think is already going to struggle to figure out a way to break down Honduras. Yes. I think that certainly did not help, and the second goal did not either. We're going to talk about that second goal in just a second, but first we're going to take a break to cool off and hear from today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. Thank you to our sponsors for the day. Joe, thank you for moving us on to the second goal, even if it's kind of a bummer, because the United States comes out. They've made the change. (laughs) It seems like there is going to be more fights. Salcedo's charging down and trying to make plays. And that was my read on it live, watching it again, and it's sort of like, yes, Salcedo is doing better running. It's still the same stuff. It's still sort of people not knowing quite where they need to be. It's balls out of bounds. It's a couple like heavy touches. And then we have the kind of sequence that leads to this goal. Obviously, Ochoa doesn't cover himself in glory, and I feel so bad for him because that's even a very nice way to phrase it. Really, it's just it's a howler. It's a horrific mistake to have the ball blocked and go into the goal and for a young keeper who had been so solid it's just it's a question mark now and that's what bums me out the most even if it shouldn't be it's a thing where in the future if he gets a back pass and he maybe takes an awkward touch or gets it stuck under his feet it becomes a thing as opposed to a thing we immediately forget so i hope he's able to overcome that i hope it's just a a minor blip that we all eventually forget but that was a pretty big bummer, but I would argue that was not the only thing going wrong in this sequence. Oh no, there are many more. And you texted a list to me and I love, (laughs) I love how deep we're about to go because it's true. There are so many other factors at play here that just aren't going to get talked about. And we're going to change that because we're going to talk about them. Honduras start the sequence. They start the sequence with a throw in on the right side Mm -hmm. after Henry Kessler clears a ball out on the side. So on that left side for the U S the right side for Honduras Taylor, uh, Taylor, I'll let you fill in any blanks that you want to after I go through. But yeah, uh, so Kessler clears the ball out on that side. And the U.S. actually do a really good job of containing Honduras and trapping them against the sideline on that throw in. They don't allow Honduras to escape and, and switch the ball over to Honduras's left. The U.S. is right. That's a good thing. And that was a, a solid moment from the U.S. So they win the ball back in their own half. The United States does. And Aaron Herrera takes a really heavy touch mm-hmm. to play the ball back to David Ochoa. So Herrera, number one, doesn't doesn't exude technical quality in that moment. He plays it back to Ochoa because he has Palma, Honduras's left winger, right on his back after that heavy touch. So mm-hmm. Herrera plays the ball back to David Ochoa, and Ochoa tries to play the ball back to Herrera. And that's where Palma steps in, blocks the pass, and, and directs it into mm-hmm. the back of the net. Taylor, the, the biggest issue I have, and I think this is the biggest issue you have with this sequence, is... Ochoa could have played the ball right up the middle yep. to Justin Glad, mm-hmm. who was wide open. The, the center back for the United States on that right side, he'd slid almost into the middle into a center center back role temporarily. He could have played that ball on the ground, six, eight, ten yards to Justin Glad, wide open, but he doesn't. And on first watch, I thought, well, that's that's a bad decision. I agree. But on rewatch, and you pointed this out as well, it's Justin Glad who's yep. motioning, no, no, play it wide to Herrera. And he's not he's not going crazy and, and yelling and screaming, no, don't play it to me. But his body language and the way he points, he does not want the ball in that moment, even though he is clearly the better option. And that that's bad. It is. And and you can see if people go back and watch, he points, he clearly says play wide. And then 
I'm with you that it's not as though he keeps pointing and screaming, but there, there is, you can tell in the body language to your point, Joe, that if he opens up his hips a little bit and kind of gets up on his toes, you can tell that maybe he's saying like, okay, never mind, play it back to me. Or at the very least, he is giving a sort of check down option. Oh, that first pass, outlet pass isn't on. Okay, play to me and I'll play it wide. But he's not really doing that. He sort of is just saying, play it wide. I don't want the ball. And that's me definitely. Uh, interpreting what he's saying for sure, but I think it's sort of my larger takeaway, and I think a big aspect of what went wrong for the U.S. in this game is I think Honduras gained confidence. They they backed themselves to win 50-50s, to fight for things, to get forward and maybe have somebody and like trust that somebody was going to cover. And I think for the U.S., increasingly, I felt like it was a I don't want the ball sort of thing or I don't want to be the one to make a mistake. I'm going to make a, a pass to get rid and hope somebody covers. And I think you, you disagree with me a little bit, I think, Joe, about the opening moment of this one. And maybe I'm being harsh, but the the throw in that Honduras have to start this, it comes from Kessler playing out, as you said. But you can hear, because there's no crowd noise and the mics are there, you can hear two different players yelling at him to play it all the way back to Ochoa instead of kicking it out. Make jokes about Ochoa, then maybe making a mistake if you want to. But I, I do think right there, that was Kessler in the moment, feeling the pressure, seeing Hunter and players running at him and just putting it out for a throw-in. Maybe he, if he tried to play it back, he messes it up. Maybe he underhits it. Maybe he overhits it. Who knows? But I felt sure. like right there, yeah. that was a sort of like making a much safer choice than the riskier choice that establishes possession or keeps possession. From there, I think an yeah. interesting thing, you're absolutely, oh, sorry, go ahead, Joe, because I wanted to give you a moment to, to no, defend w- Kessler if you so choose. No, I'm not going to defend Kessler. I don't think he really had the ability to play that ball back, okay. even if his teammates were telling him to. But that's almost besides the point I want to make. We just illustrated you with Kessler and me with Glad. There are moments on this goal that are emblematic yep. of the whole game for the U.S. Just that that desire to kind of shirk responsibility on the ball. I'm not saying the players went out there and they weren't trying to win. Blah blah blah. I, I've heard that a lot. And I I mean that's really hard to yeah. that's really hard for me to agree with. Mm. But the U.S. in possession, they they didn't approach this game in a way that said I want the ball. I'm gonna break right. lines. I'm gonna drive forward. I'm gonna find you know Ferreira dropping in, and then Ferreira. I'm gonna turn. I'm gonna play forward. We're gonna move together as a group. That didn't happen. Justin Glad, you know, pointing to Herrera yep. to to take responsibility on that play, and then you know, kind of almost causing that goal in one way at least. Kessler, if you think he should have played back, and the U.S. kept possession, that attitude for the entire team really wasn't there in this game, and I think that's a big issue. Yeah. The U.S. approached this game and said, like you said, Taylor, we're going to be hard to play against. We're going to make life difficult for Honduras. Instead of saying we're going to own the ball and we're going to pass and break you down, that I think is the biggest mentality difference, at least from what we can tell and observe, between the senior team and this U23 group that didn't qualify. Yeah, yeah, I I agree with all of that. I think there was a mentality, because I think it's, I should back up and say, I think it's too easy to say, like, I I don't want the ball. I don't want the ball. Like It was a team that didn't want the ball. I think that's, that's, no player on the field is ever like, I don't want to be here, I'm not going to work hard. But I think there is a, a nervousness that can take over. And I think it's less of a, I don't want the ball and more of a, you do it mentality. And I think the U S there were players in this game that were just sort of hoping somebody else would do the heavy lifting that they can make the simple pass. That player will carry the ball forward 30 yards. And then we can go from there. But even in this sequence, you already talked about that heavy touch from Herrera. It comes about because I'm not trying to like throw blame on Salcedo, but what he's clearly trying to do is it's a loose ball. He's running back at his goal. Hundred players trying to get to it before he does. And Salcedo goes, 
goes for the thing you see sometimes where the player who gets to it first just hits it as hard as they can because he's trying to smash it off the Honduran player and send it either back towards the Honduras goal or out of bounds for a U.S. throw. But instead what it does, it takes a deflection off the player, and that's how it goes to Herrera, who's standing flat-footed. And so it's it's a deflected ball, it's got weird spin, but Herrera's standing flat and then trying to lift his foot up to control it. That's never a thing you're supposed to do, and the U.S. did it plenty of times, and Jason Christ himself complained about balls going under feet and out of bounds when they shouldn't have. And this was another example of Herrera raises the foot, now he can't control it as cleanly, and it pops up, and then he's under pressure. And I think in that moment, he could have squared to Glad. He could have fainted to the right and cut to the left and, and tried to do like the Cruyff turn down the line or something. But I think right there, he doesn't want to try to make up for his mistake. He doesn't want to try to find another pass that maybe keeps possession in a more proactive way. He's just dropping it back and then letting Ochoa deal with it. And it felt like there were a number of moments in this one of just you deal with it, you deal with it, I don't want to deal with it. And that's not the attitude you need when you're trying to fight back and get a result. I would argue the only player... I would say David Ochoa kind of did this. It's just that goal was such a negative. I would say the only player, especially in the second half, who showed that fight, who showed that determination and the willingness to want the ball was Jackson Yule. And it's not surprising to me that he scores. I think he's all over the place after that second goal, certainly after he gets the, the one goal pulled back. I thought Yule had a great second half. It certainly wasn't enough. And I think the U.S. didn't have the attacking options they needed to ever be able to fight back to a point where it seemed like they were going to get the draw, get a win. But at least there was a little bit of fight from Yule. I didn't see it as much from some of the other players on the field. Yeah, the U.S. started to push numbers forward really hard in the attack after they go down two to nothing. They almost give up another goal because they have so many numbers forward. The U.S. leave just their center backs back on an attack and they almost get exposed on the counter and give up a third. But they don't and they continue to push numbers forward. And then Jackson Yule goes goes full God mode and tries to make things happen all on his own. That goal, Taylor, is unreal. Right. It's yeah. it's the U.S. still reeling after going down and then almost going down again. Honduras have a free kick. Andres Perea wins the ball in midfield, which was a rare occurrence for the mm-hmm. entire team in this game. Mm-hmm. And he gets it forward to Jackson Ewell. And Jackson Ewell is in the attacking half, kind of shaded to the left side. He has passing options to his left and to his right that he probably should have fed. He had Sacedo on his left. He had Asani Dotson, Jonathan Lewis and Jesus Ferreira on his right. All, all of those passes, probably especially the ones on the right with Dotson and, and Lewis and Ferreira, would have advanced the ball and, and led to a shot. Certainly a couple of those would have led to a shot. But Jackson Ewell ignores those players, takes it himself, mm-hmm. and scores a banger from outside the box with his right foot. The shot goes top left. It's gorgeous. It was also the U.S.'s first shot on goal in this game. Didn't realize that on first watch, but it, it was. I mean, that, that shot from Jackson Ewell is ridiculous, but it is, again, emblematic of yeah. – him trying to take this game on because he just didn't at this point from what we can infer he didn't think that the rest of the players were willing to do that yeah and and to bring it home like we talked about in the first half how when the U.S. would get half chances or it seemed like maybe there was going to be space opening up it always I keep going to the mentality thing but to me it felt like oh I hope I get this chance I hope I'm able to pull this off it was always a like I'm I'm trying to do it. I hope it works. And that that goal from Yule was like I am doing this. <laughs> like and there is a a difference in the way you're thinking and and you're absolutely right, Joe, that there are other passes, there are other options that I think if they're not desperate to get back into this one, Yule probably plays those and they recycle possession and they slow it down and they try to pick their chances. And this is what I think the US desperately needed in this game was players just realizing these are dire situations. We've got to try to make something happen. You will make something happen here, I would say, almost single-handedly, though he does get the assist, Perea does. 
But I think from there, you do see a little bit more fight. You see a little bit more individuality. But it still just isn't going to be enough if you don't have the players coming in that can really facilitate that attack and facilitate that belief. I would argue Soto coming in in the 62nd minute is Christ recognizing, oh, the system isn't working. It's not just Georgi Mihailovic because I think the idea then is Soto stays high, stretches the back line. Ferreira can drift and try to open up space, try to find himself in some space, get the ball, then link up attack or maybe drive at the goal himself. I think that is Christ trying to change it up a little bit. But by that point, I think Honduras have adjusted. They've made some substitutions. The U.S. has tired legs. I thought Jonathan Lewis really ran out of gas and struggled in the second half. I don't think he had the the best game overall. And so I think the U.S. kind of just ran into a wall there in the second half. I I did believe for a couple minutes they were going to find their way back. Um, It did definitely correspond to seeing Doyle tweet like this – this feels like USA Trinidad with Pulisic scoring that goal, and we all got a little bit of belief. And I was like, no, Joel's going to be wrong. They're going to pull him back. They're going to win in regulation 3-2. And then as time ticked away, it felt more and more like, oh, they don't really have the options they need. They don't really have the the ability to fight back and get that equalizer. And that ended up being the case. The U.S. had a few chances. They had about four chances, a couple of them better than a couple of the other ones. But they did have moments, and they were in control of the ball. But they still weren't doing a lot of things with the ball. It was a lot of crosses out wide from Aaron Herrera. It was a hopeful cross from Tanner Tessman yeah. to bend the ball in and get on the, the outside of Lewis's right foot, I think it was at this point. I mean, there were these half chances that the U.S. had. But I want to circle back to the subs, Taylor. So it's Sebastian Saucedo that comes on for Georgi Mihailovic at mm-hmm. half, like we've said. Soto on for Perea, as you said. Tanner Tessman then comes on for Hassani Dotson in the 73rd minute. And then it's Johnny Cardoso on for Jonathan Lewis in the 88th minute. Looking at those last two subs specifically, yeah. Tanner Tessman wasn't originally on the roster. He comes nope. in for an injured, George, uh, in, injured Ulianas. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's an understandable change, but Tessman wasn't originally included, so Christ brought him because he had to. And then Johnny Cardoso comes on for Jonathan Lewis, not Benji Michelle. And that, I mean, if that's not a clear sign, and maybe there's something going on behind the scenes, we don't know. But if that's not a clear sign of saying, yeah, man, the attacking players I brought can't get it done, or I don't yep. believe in them to get it done, I don't know what is Taylor. And that is that just looks bad for Jason Christ, honestly. I don't I, I'm not saying Benji Michelle would have changed the game. He I don't think he would have. Mm-mm. But you bring in Johnny Cardoso when there's two, three, four, five, six minutes left in this game. What are you expecting is gonna happen? I, I genuinely don't know. Yeah, and, and it's and it requires a formation change because you're you're not putting Cardoso out on like the right wing that I recall. You're having other players do that, which means people have to move around, which means you need a couple minutes to kind of figure it out and get comfortable. And by then the final whistle is about to blow. Like, yeah, making that change in the 89th minute, it, it just it was not enough. I feel like the Soto change, which I do think made sense, that probably needed to happen in yeah, like course, at halftime yeah. or in the 55th minute. I think Tanner Tessman for uh, Sandy Dotson, I thought Dotson was okay. I thought we saw basically what we've seen from him. Uh, okay on the ball, decent at times, working really, really hard. a little bit too. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but like there are those moments where he sprints 20 yards to have that poke tackle. I, I think that is like the Dotson trademark in my mind. His like, yes. his big thing that I, that I notice every time is the like, just poking the ball away at the last second. But... I think that even that change makes sense. But again, it being in the 73rd, that probably could have been five, ten minutes earlier. (laughs) Cardoso, if you're going to bring him on, certainly could have been earlier. I don't think Jonathan Lewis, again, had a very good game. There is that miss you mentioned where he goes for the right foot. I think he takes a weird angle and tries to go towards the middle of the goal. If he stays a little bit further back and is kind of... uh, uh, like covering the trash at the back post, I think that probably goes in. It, It is what it is, but I'm with you that those substitutions... 
don't make a lot of sense when they happen. And then certainly I haven't been as impressed with Benji Michelle. We've talked about it previously. I don't think he's particularly good in the 1v1 take-ons, and I think that is what they needed. I think they knew Honduras were going to be a bit more defensive, so having a player who can run at people with pace isn't as important as a player who can use his skill to get by people. But it's you're absolutely right, Joe, that having attacking options that you don't end up using when you absolutely need a goal is more than a little bit of a head-scratcher. Yeah, I mean, and it circles back to what we almost opened the show with talking about briefly, you know, would Jackson Newell have been better off at the six? And if so, what other players mm-hmm. would Christ have needed to make that make sense and, and to make him comfortable with that? And it just it all points back to the original roster selection where, yeah, no player that was left home would have would have changed this team completely. But you can make very valid arguments that from a basic roster construction standpoint, this wasn't a well constructed group it just it, it wasn't and I don't think that's even Monday morning quarterbacking I think that was that was clear in certain ways from day one yeah I think there are ways that this group still could have qualified I'm not saying that that isn't mm-hmm. the case they still should have been better than Honduras and they still should have won this game but I mean when you're bringing Johnny Cardoso a player who I don't particularly rate and I'm not saying his career's over or anything like that I want to give him time and learn more about him as a player but when you're bringing a central midfielder on at the very end of the game and you have an attacking player on the bench it it makes me think and it makes me wonder and it doesn't make me think or wonder particularly good things. No, I, I'm with you. And if you're Jason Christ, our friend of Jason Christ, um, I know some people who are friends of Jason Christ. You might want to turn this off for a moment because like I, I, I'm not meaning for this to be a personal attack. I want to say that up front. But but I do think where I was last night after this result is finalized and there's the frustration with U.S. soccer, there's the frustration with we're never going to be good enough, we always choke, we don't have the players, we don't have the talent, we don't have the coaching, that to me is the biggest thing. I'm less concerned about these players not performing because I think if you look at the players that Christ has used in, in his tenure, there are many, many, many other names on there that didn't end up getting called in because they couldn't be. You had... Seven or eight, I think, players that he has utilized in various camps who were with the U.S. national team or would have been in the case of Timothy Weah. You have a lot of players who weren't going to be released by their European clubs. You have, what, three or four players who weren't released by their MLS teams. So you have tons of talent that just could not be there for any number of reasons. So I don't worry about the talent and the U.S. development falling behind. I don't think that's as big of an issue. Where I end up focusing is on Christ and not just him as a coach, but his appointment in the first place. That's a guy who didn't work at NYCFC, doesn't work at Orlando City, has okay success in USL and is now being given the keys to the Olympic team and is being asked to play a system that is different than his own. I think of Christ as like a 442 diamond, a 442 generally speaking, I'm sure he's tried other stuff, but it, you are asking him to do something that another coach does. And to me it makes more sense to find somebody young, somebody up and coming, somebody who's doing the same thing but wants that next step, wants that sort of oh yeah, I'm coaching the US U23 national team. That is a a thing to add to the resume. And I don't know if that's necessarily what this was for Christ, aside from a way to maybe restore his name a little bit if they qualified. But I look at his roster construction and then I look at the in-game decisions he made. And to be honest, the way he explained them in the post-match press conference from the six minutes or so that I saw of it. And I want to be clear, like he may have said other things in other parts that I did not see. Joe, maybe you did. But what I saw was a lot of him basically blaming the players and saying, like, 
Maybe we wanted it too much. And when you want something too much, your performance suffers. It wasn't quite enough. We didn't have the energy there. There was a lack of general sharpness and individual mistakes. Uh, we had guys rushing with every decision. We had some inexplicable moments that make you scratch your head. Like it was all about the players not performing. And I guess to me, if you're the person who's in charge of getting the players to perform <laughs> and most of them don't do it on the day, you got to bear some of that responsibility. And I think I'm frustrated with some of the coaching decisions in game. I'm frustrated with some of the roster, some of that being out of Jason Christ's control, some of it being in his control. But I also think where my frustration mostly rests is in Jason Christ and in the process behind hiring him because I don't know what it was aside from Ernie Stewart announcing he'd been hired and he was bringing a, a career of 10 years in Major League Soccer with lots of success and making the playoffs so don't ask about those last two teams though uh, like that is where I think some of the frustration in my mind is justified because it still feels like we don't really know what the process is we don't know why people are getting jobs and if anything this feels like hey this is a good way for you to kind of rehabilitate your career we're going to give you this team you're going to get to the olympics now you'll have gotten them to the olympics maybe they make it out of the group stage and now you're the guy who got them out of the group stage and then we go from there but like is that enough is christ going into the job interview saying like i want to play 433 positional soccer and like and i want these like good passing combinations and good sequences and technical ability and i don't know if that was what it was or if it was like hey jason can you coach the olympic team great you're hired i i don't know what that was i'm not saying that needs to be transparent but i think i i do have frustration with the coach and with the coaching hire itself joe that is my sort of mini rant i welcome you to go on one of your own or defend anybody you want to or attack anybody you want to it's up to you. I'm I'm going to attack myself first and foremost. Okay. I don't want to speak for you, Taylor, but I think, man, hindsight is really 2020. That's such a great expression. But there, there's a reality where before this tournament starts or back when Jason Christ is hired, there's a reality where I look at that and say, man, he hasn't been very good in MLS as yeah. a coach. Like, why is he being hired? But I, I didn't really think that through at the time. And same with Anthony Hudson. And now we kind of have a chance to evaluate Anthony Hudson in wake of what's happened with this Olympic team as Anthony Hudson was hired as the U-20 coach after Tab Ramos left. These are two guys who had poor MLS coaching careers excusing Jason Christ's time at RSL, where he had a really, really good squad. Um, these are two guys that did not excel in Major League Soccer, and they are being given two of the most important youth national team jobs in the Federation. I mean, that is something that I should have raised my eyebrows at before. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe I did with Anthony Hudson more so than Jason Christ. But I think it is very fair. And this should have happened before the tournament for me. I, I don't want to blame anyone else here. But it is very fair to look at the hiring process and wonder, yeah, how, how has this happened? And even with Greg Berhalter, this has been done so many times. But, I mean, there are some issues with how he was hired and how that whole situation post-Kuva was handled. Yeah. And those are valid issues. I really like Greg Berhalter as a coach. I really do. I think he's doing great things. I've criticized him in the past, but the way that he has got this team playing is really encouraging. And that's awesome. I love that. But it is very fair, I think. And, and this should have happened beforehand. Again, it is very fair to criticize the coaches, certainly Jason Christ right now, but also how they were brought into the federation, how they were brought into these jobs. I think these coaching jobs should be given to promising up-and-coming coaches yeah. as a chance for them to elevate themselves and their careers, not MLS coaches who are on the downward slide. And that's harsh, but, I mean, that's what I think here. 
Jason Christ yeah. really should probably not have been coaching this team in the first place. I, I don't think that's harsh. I really don't. And I think you're also very smart to start by talking about like hindsight and yourself, because I, I think that that is fair. And it's how I feel as well, Joe. So thank you for bringing that up. But like when we talked about this tournament going in, I think my opening question to you or our opening conversation in our preview was sort of like, is it that big of a deal if they don't qualify? And I think we yeah, both kind of came away with this. It. Yeah, because I think we both came away from it with an idea of like, maybe not, because it's not our strongest team. There's going to be tons of other competition competitions this summer where other players will be able to get minutes so overall if we make it that's great but if we don't it's not the end of the world and I maintain it's not the end of the world but I do think I was I will be honest I think I was overlooking the opposition a little bit I think I was also overlooking the Olympics as an important thing Uh, I forget I wrote down so I wouldn't forget and then I did uh at Noah (laughs) underscore Houck H-O-U-C-K 23 tweeted and it's a very good point that like the number the number of number nines we have right now who are unproven but we need to know more from is absurd. And the number that could have played for the Olympics include uh, Josh Sargent, Jesus Ferreira, Sebastian Soto, Matthew Hoppe, Joe Aquini, Sibachu, and Daryl DK. That's seven attackers that could have gotten minutes, and now that's one less competition where they're going to be able to get those chances. So I think I was sort of overlooking it, I think partially because... I assumed they would qualify, and that is a mistake on my part that I will own. But I really did think, like, surely they have learned their lesson. Surely, yeah, Herzog trying to just attack with pace down the channels. We've moved past that. We're playing Greggy Ball. Like, Christ is going to do the same things. We're going to have rotations. There's going to be consultations with Berhalter. It's all going to be work. And I think I trusted the Federation. I trusted that, like, this is a good hire. They've got it figured out. It's going to be better. And I think one of my takeaways from this one, it's not meant to be as like cynical or as depressing as it might sound, is just that like I have renewed questions about the Federation going forward. Not that I'm going to be like, what's this? What's this? Why have you done this? Show me your books. But just I think I'm going to be a little bit less inclined to think, well, they must know. Because I I remember hearing Christ and thinking like, well, like I know a little bit about him and a little bit about Major League Soccer. There are other people who know much more. And it doesn't feel like everybody is sort of like, this is a disaster. So far be it for me to say it's a disaster. But I think I shared some of your concerns, Joe, and just maybe wasn't confident enough to say, like, this doesn't seem like it's going to be a great hire, but who knows? And so I think I was kind of willing to think, I'm sure they'll figure it out. And that's where I think I wasn't as concerned about some of the roster choices because it felt like fundamentally this is a team that know what they're doing and know how to execute. And then from that first match day to this point, you just keep seeing those like, oh, they don't have a creator. That is an issue. Oh, they don't have as much wide attack as we thought they would. And I think Uliana's absence is a big part of that. But should missing one player mean that your entire attacking plan is now kind of thrown into the wind? I, I don't think so. So I think I come away from this with... More questions than I certainly had going in, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but it is just a a slightly, not even a slightly, it's just a more down thing than I expected to be at this point. This morning I went back and listened to our preview show of the Olympic qualifying Mm -hmm. tournament and and re-listened to our conversation about how bad is it, or is it bad, if the U.S. missed the Olympics. And so I have that more fresh in my mind right now. Listeners, I'd encourage you guys to go back and listen to that as well if you want to cross-reference what we're saying now with what we said then. But the expression that I used when talking about what happens if the U.S. doesn't qualify is the sky isn't falling. Mm-hmm. And I 100% stand by that right Agreed. now. You want your program to be playing in as many tournaments as possible. That is true. You miss out on valuable experience by not going to the Olympics. That is true. 
a lot of former players have come out and said that. And I think their perspective is hugely valuable here. These players would have loved to go to the Olympics and play and experience that. And that is a shame that they're not going to be able to do that. So you're missing out on, on chances to evaluate the pool from a technical standpoint, if you're the coaching staff and on U.S. soccer side. And if you're a player, you miss out on life experience and you miss out on experience to improve against tournament in a tournament atmosphere and against competition in that setting. That those are all missed opportunities. And that combined those factors combined their failure. This is a failure. Mm-hmm. And that is that is the truth. But I think it's fair to say that and believe that. And it's also fair to say and, and look back on the progress that the U.S. has made as a federation, but I mean more so on the technical player coaching side of things at the senior level. There's been so much progress made since 2017, mm-hmm. since the last time the U.S. failed to qualify for the World Cup, or even since 2016 or 2012. Paul Tenorio had a great story for The Athletic in kind of walking through the fact that this failure to qualify is different than those other times. This failure to qualify is not indicative of a lack of talent in the pool. It's just not. It is indicative, I will say, of the youth coaching hiring process, and maybe we need to have some questions about that. Maybe we should have had those before. It's also indicative of, I think, a lack of experience, starting at the youth level, playing against CONCACAF opposition. Paul Kennedy had a great tweet. This is from 2019 that resurfaced yesterday about how many games Mexico's Mexico's U23 program has had in that age group starting in 2018 or 2019 compared to how many the U.S. has had. Back in 2019, the U.S. had played two games with this group. COVID throws a whole wrench into it. I get that. But the U.S. Federation is not really investing in this age group. They're not sending them out to play friendlies against international competition and against, you know, CONCACAF regional competition. Mexico is. And you can see that on the field. That, I think, is a fair criticism to raise of how is the U.S. You know, fostering this environment at this particular U23 age group? How are they preparing their youth players starting at the 17s to the 20s to the 23s to the senior team? How are they preparing this age cohort to play against regional competition? Because, Taylor, qualifying, World Cup qualifying is going to be hard. It, you're going to come out in the U.S. senior team. Greg Berhalter is probably going to get punched in the mouth by Honduras, and they're going to have a bad game where the ball doesn't roll properly on the field. We know that. And so I, I think there is a slight concern, and this is fair. There is a slight concern that the U.S. senior team is going to come in with some players that are at a similar age level who have had similar experiences domestically and regionally in North and Central America, and they're going to struggle. Mm-hmm. But again, I want to say you know, the struggles of this U23 group do not represent the state of the pool and, and do not even represent necessarily the experiences of the senior group. We cannot indict Christian Pulisic and Brendan Aronson and Gio Reyna and all those guys because of how this group performed. But I do think it is fair to raise a little question and say, wow, I'm, I'm curious to see how the senior group of players is going to come in and play against this type of Honduran opposition. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think those are all very, very good points, Joe, because you look at the teams that they are playing in friendlies and it's Egypt, it's Japan, it's Brazil. Good opponents for sure. But you're right. It doesn't really prepare you for the gamesmanship of Honduras. And I don't think the U.S. like like really um, lost their cool or anything like that. Like Kessler has the yellow that easily like I feel like in another a couple of years ago, that's probably a second yellow or a red card later on because Honduras know how to frustrate and know how to get you to make mistakes. I think the U.S. kept their cool, but I think you're right that you don't have that 
that sort of like, oh, this is a grind. This team wants to beat us badly. Like, Japan would like to win against the United States. I don't think Japan is going to do everything they can, like, fundamentally from start to finish to win that game the way I think Honduras will or maybe El Salvador, who the United States did beat. But that's, again, in, I think, like the first rounds of Olympic qualifying to even get to the competition. You don't have those friendlies on on – like in CONCACAF countries, you're right. Or even just have Honduras coming to the United States for a friendly or Mexico at U23 level. Like I think you get them intermittently, but you're right that you need that type of experience to help you get ready. But at the end of the day, it is still a team that like if they had had Gio Reyna, uh, Christian Capas, Chris Richards, Brendan Aronson, Timothy Weah, Josh Sargent, uh, Anthony Robinson, all players who have played for the U23s under Jason Christ they, I have to believe, find a way through, they get a result, even with Jason Christ maybe not necessarily making the best in-game substitutions. So I'm with you that I don't think it's a condemnation of the development academies, the player pool, the system that's bringing players through. I think there are just a few other specific questions that need to be asked, that need to be looked into. And I'm with you, Joe, that I'm happy to maybe continue to keep an eye on that as uh, we move forward with the show. Yeah, no, I, I think you said it well. Hopefully we said it well. The sky is not falling. It is it is sad. It is a failure that the U.S. did not qualify. There were issues in this tournament, and there are issues that should continue to be examined going forward and probably should have been examined you know, months, years ago. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, overall, sad they didn't qualify. There are still building blocks at the senior level that are super, super encouraging. Yes. Uh, and final thing, which is a weird note to end on, is just I did see a lot of people calling for Jason Christ to be fired, for Jason Christ to be sacked. I believe I'm correct in saying that his contract was for a little bit qualifying and through the Olympics. So now they haven't qualified. I think he just goes Mission right accomplished. to Inter-Miami. So uh, we'll see what happens next. We'll see where the U23s go from here, but they will not be going to the Olympics. Instead, we, you and I, Joe, will be moving to Belfast to talk about the U.S. senior team's win over Northern Ireland. But first, we're going to take a break to once again cool off, to calm down, and to hear from today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willingly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. 
Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. We are back to talk about happier times. The U.S. senior team with a 2-1 to win over Northern Ireland uh, in an international friendly, so they're not going to the Olympics either, but for very different reasons. Joe, uh, there's <laughs> a few different things to talk about. We've got some goals. We've got some uh, questionable moments maybe to break down. But I want to start with the the big point, the basic point. It was a back three. We saw Greg Berhalter go for it. It was a different look. Uh, what did you make of that back three? And... I guess maybe this can be a secondary question we can get into, but what do you think this gives them that the back four does not? So let's start with just the back three. Were you excited to see it? What were your initial impressions? I was. I was excited. We'd heard rumblings that it was happening. We didn't know for sure. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of center backs on the roster, and we see a back three in this game. It's a different shape. We'd seen the back three one time previously under Berhalter in a pre-Gold Cup friendly in 2019 against Jamaica that the U.S. lost. It looked bad. It looked rough in that game back in 2019. In this game... It also looked rough. The U.S. hadn't it trained did. this shape for, for more than eight minutes. Is that what they said on the broadcast, that Taylor? I mean, said. it was it was a new experience for a lot of these guys. You could tell. They didn't look as organized as they do in the 4-3-3. But that's understandable. And, Taylor, I fully support Greg Berhalter trying to tinker a little bit, recognizing that the 3-4-3 is not the new full-time shape. The 4-3-3 is still plan A. But having a plan B that you can work on in friendlies and build to make yourself harder to play against, there's a lot of value in that, and I support that effort completely. Yeah. So uh, he said the eight minutes thing, or at least that's what Stu Holden and John Strong said. I'm wondering if that is some selective timekeeping of like, oh, yeah, we did like an eight-minute scrimmage with it, but we also did four hours of tape and like tactical <laughs> practice. <laughs> Who knows for sure? What I did, uh, like, like I saw this a little bit on Twitter, and I did like find myself pondering for a moment, is... Like when Burhalter says, oh, yeah, we worked on this for eight minutes and now we're trying it. Why am I not as angry as when Jurgen Klinsmann would not work on something like a back three, but then try it and see what happened? And I think just up front, I want to say the difference to me is that Burhalter says, like, it gives us something to build on. We learn some things. We try it again. I think my frustration with Klinsmann was always I didn't know if the next game this would be a thing they would try again or if they did, if it would be the same style or the same approach. It never felt like there was a progression. There was a natural build, whereas I'm not saying we'll see this in the next friendly or we'll see this in the next couple friendlies, but I think when we do see it again, I think we will at some point because I think it's meant to be the plan B for a different type of opponent or a different situation. I think it will be this worked, that didn't work. This wasn't as okay. We're going to change this. This guy's going to play here instead. Like I think we'll see 
development from one game to the next. And that's kind of all I need to see to feel confident uh, in the decision. So though it was only eight minutes, theoretically, uh, I am okay with it. Uh, I think I was also okay with the look itself because I think it puts some people in more comfortable positions. Though, Joe, I take your point that broadly speaking, I think there were those moments where it was disjointed and like, oh, right, they're not there because we're not playing this system. We're playing that one. So now I got to go this way with the ball (laughs) instead. But the idea that this gives us a different look, it gives us a plan B. Joe, in your mind, what sort of is the different look? What does this give us that a back four in a 4-3-3 does not? So it gives the U.S. a chance to make their center backs more of of playmakers. It allows guys like Tim Ream, who started as left center back in the back three, a chance to drive forward and play really nice balls into the box or in and around the box. It allows John Brooks, if he'd been in this camp, he would have started at that spot probably. It allows him to to really become a playmaker. If Chris Richards can grow and become that maybe on the right side of a back three or even in the middle, that's upside. And you get more looks from your center backs in a back three than you do in a back two just because, one, there are more center backs. And two, you tend to circulate the ball more in that U shape, that V shape along the back line. So that's that's really helpful. It also allows guys like Christian Pulisic or at least with how – the U.S. approached this shape in this game against Northern Ireland. It allows the wingers to to play even more narrow and even more centrally. Pulisic and even Reina as well both played as a straight-up number 10 for large stretches of this game. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, okay, we got to press out wide and, and we're a part of the front three and high up the field when we press, yeah, there was still that that pressing intent from the U.S., but in possession, the focus seemed to me to have it, it was to have guys like Pulisic tucking inside and getting on the ball more in the number 10 spot in ways that doesn't happen in ways that don't happen in that 4-3-3. So I think there are a couple of advantages more than even the ones I've detailed, but those are are at least two of them. Yeah, I think I think it makes a lot of sense at least on paper and I think in practice down the road it will too because you're right. You have Pulisic and Reyna like allowed to cut inside to be more number 10s. They can still stay wide and create overloads if they want to, but they don't have to do that, and that doesn't have to be their starting position. But then it lets Anthony Robinson bomb up and down that left side. It lets Serginho Des bomb up and down that right side, but the three center backs more or less staying home gives them cover through the middle. You've got three that you can keep tight. They don't always do that in possession, but I think when there's a risk, they'll kind of come together, and then you've clogged the middle. You're forcing the opponent to attack down the channels then, and that is just fundamentally a safer place for them to counter. So I think it put people in good positions mostly. I don't know if Kellen Acosta had his best game as a midfield two. Uh, let me rephrase that. I know he didn't have his best game uh, in a midfield two. <laughs> I was less down on him than I think a lot of other folks were. I think partially because Yunus Musa played so well. I was so sort of like into Yunus Musa that basically anything anything Kellen Acosta did to facilitate Musa I thought was a positive. But rewatching again and paying particular attention to him – I, I agree with Stu Holden's initial assessment that I think this is Kellen Acosta in preseason form. Maybe the fitness isn't yes. quite there. And though he can run, it's not like he's overweight or out of shape. But I think you can see it in a first touch that maybe is usually stopped dead or goes a foot out in front, goes a yard or two yards out in front or gets stuck under your feet. And that happened a couple of different times to Kellen Acosta. And I think you could just see him starting at maybe 80% instead of 100%. And that is going to cost you, especially when there's only two of you and you're accustomed to having at least one more there centrally with you. So I, I think Kellen Acosta had 
an okay game is where I am with it. I, I still have some concerns about him in a midfield too, but I don't really think that we saw enough negative from him that like now I, I don't know if he fits into this team at all or anything like that. I still think the lack of depth at the number six spot behind Tyler Adams means there are plenty of opportunities for him, but I do think I would rather see him, you know, fully ready to go in mid season form playing this role than preseason with heavy legs. One of my takeaways from this March-friendly window, these two games, Jamaica and Northern Ireland, is that Kellen Acosta is now in the depth chart at that number six mm-hmm. spot. That didn't change after this Northern Ireland game for me. Northern Ireland defended in a 3-5-2, but it was more of a 3-4-1-2 with George Savile stepping higher and defending as a number 10, marking and shadowing Kellen Acosta. Mm-hmm. Acosta didn't have to deal with that against Jamaica, so he had more pressure on him. He made more mistakes under that pressure. But yeah, he's in preseason form, and he he certainly wasn't flawless. And he wasn't flawless against Jamaica either. He was really good against Jamaica. But he, you know, even after this game, I don't feel differently that he should be in that conversation for depth. One more quick advantage of the 3-4-3. If over the summer and starting kind of in September or even in the Gold Cup and Nations League, the U.S. has so many games going on, they're not going to have all their personnel in every competition. There are going to be injuries. There's going to be absences. Having a shape that has more defenders in it naturally and fewer midfielders could allow Berhalter to use his personnel more effectively if he just doesn't have enough midfielders to play a three-man midfield and have the right depth. You have more defenders. You can bring more defenders into a camp. You can bring fewer midfielders and accommodate for the pool as it fluctuates. I think there's real value in that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so that gets back to the idea of like that lends itself to natural development, that if we see Kellen Acosta in the next team when they're in a back three but he's playing a little bit faster or he has more immediate support. Somebody else is like moving closer to him when he does have somebody on him. You can see how they've learned from what Northern Ireland were doing. If we don't see Kellen Acosta at all in, in a, like in the same situation, three, four, two, one, then I think maybe that is also progression that we know like, okay, Greg Berhalter thinks maybe he's not the guy to go with in a midfield too. But either way, I think like we learned some things and then it's how you move from that, how you incorporate those lessons into what you're trying to do. That's fundamentally the important things when it comes to utilizing these friendlies for meaningful minutes to learn meaningful lessons that can help you when you get to actual meaningful competitions. Yeah, I 100% agree. We learned other things in this game what as else well, did we learn, in, the, Joe? in this what friendly else? as well. I think I think we learned, well, I guess this is so specific, but it's notable to me, even from this game and the Jamaica game, when the U.S. was building out, and it was very imperfect against Northern Ireland, but when they were building out of their half under pressure, Gio Reyna on that right side is such an asset in build-up. He can come back. In this game, he helped out Sergio Dest. In the last game, he helped out Reggie Cannon. He can come back, and he's got such a wide frame. Even though he doesn't really look like it, he's so strong in his in his stance that he can come back with his back to goal, get on the ball, turn, kind of bust out of that, go forward, and then advance the ball for the U.S. almost on his own. Because of how great Berhalter wants to play, Gio Reyna, whether he's in a 4-3-3 at the right wing, whether he's in a 3-4-3 as a, as a right winger, he's a real asset in helping the U.S. progress and move forward into the attack. I don't think I had realized that fully before, and I think that's that's important and it's going to be key for the U.S. going forward. Literally yeah. and figuratively. Yeah, I agree. I also think he, he was just in a, in a bit more of a comfortable position, similar to Christian Pulisic. I thought both of them looked pretty good on the ball, pretty consistently. Reyna obviously getting the goal with a little bit of a deflection. But even there, that's him, in contrast to what we talked about with the U23s, that's him getting the ball with relative pressure on him, controlling it well, like 
on the half turn, then getting by somebody to then open up to get a shot. Like I thought it was it was good decision making from a player playing in a situation where he's more comfortable. He's not out wide having to rotate centrally, but then back out wide and then combine, but make sure he's covering at the same time. I think it gave him a little bit less responsibility. And where it gave him more is where I think he's more comfortable and more familiar with it. So I'm with you that I still saw moments with Gio Reyna where I felt like you could see his age, where maybe he wasn't tracking or he was a little bit flat-footed on some set pieces. But I think we saw enough of the positives that I was reminded how good of a player he is, even if it's silly that I needed to be reminded of that in the first place. (laughs) I mean, and he scores that goal as well in the 30th minute. The U.S. kind of sucked Northern Ireland over to the U.S.'s left, Northern Ireland's right side. They have an overload on the left with Musa, Robinson, Pulisic, and then Reem stepping forward from left-sided center back. That's a key that we kind of already talked about. Reem then plays the ball into Reyna, who's behind Northern Ireland's midfield. He's kind of to the side of it. He gets on the ball, and Northern Ireland defender steps up their center, center back. McLaughlin steps up. Reyna kind of sidesteps him and shoot and shoots. The shot is blocked, but it still goes in. It's a really nice attacking sequence. It gets your number 10-like players in Gio Reyna into central spaces. It allows your distributors along the back line to step up and be a distributor. This goal kind of checked all the boxes, and it illustrates Gio Reyna being in that comfortable space that you're talking about, Taylor. Yeah, I, I think it also illustrated uh, for people who always ask, why is Tim Ream here? I think it gives us a little bit more of an answer. Would That's you agree why. with that, Joe? That and his long flowing locks. <laughs> well, of course, those are important. Uh, but I, I sent this to you. I think I tweeted about it as well. Uh, this pass from Reem, which is sort of an incisive. This one is a little bit less incisive because it's more like standing on the ball waiting for, I think it was Pulisic to get out of the way so he could pass it to Gio Reyna. Yeah. But it's still a sort of from the left channel playing it central bypassing a couple players to find a player in space. But he did this earlier in the 18th minute. Uh, Robinson has like hustled down the line, taken a defender with him. Reem has the ball and he plays a nice diagonal, a driven diagonal on the floor into the feet of Pulisic. And it makes Northern Ireland collapse. It makes them try to scramble to deal with him defensively. And that then opens up for other players. And that's what it's all about. It's about that pass creating more options for the player to then create more options. And then ideally all those options culminate in a goal here. It doesn't for the first one for the second one, it does. And I think that was good from Reem. I think overall the passing from the back three was something. Uh, we had Miazga, I think <laughs> completed the most passes of any player on the field, or at least any U uh, S player, 56 total passes, but a 75% completion rate, which was uh, second best. Tim Reem had 77%. Aaron Long had a 73% pass completion rate. Not great, because you're usually looking for like 80s at least, and especially when you have so many of those passes being square, being between those three, you would expect them to be higher. It's not rare for your center backs to have the most passes, and usually if you're in a back four, your number one and number two passing combinations are going to be one center back to the other center back. I think here where you see some of those lower percentages are where when you look at longer balls over maybe 10 to 15 yard passes from that range and on forward, that's where the, there's they drop off of a cliff. Uh, and the same honestly goes for Kellen Acosta. If you look at his passing percentage, he went 30 for 38, but in long passes forward, he was one for seven. And I think that was the U.S. maybe not executing on occasion. I think it was also the U.S. figuring out a new system and trying new things. And so again, I don't have as much frustration with the center backs trying to pass out. I will if it doesn't improve as people get more familiar with the system and players understand what their responsibilities are. 
But for right now, I thought it was worth taking some risks, going for some of those long passes, even if they didn't come off, just to sort of probe for vulnerability, look for weakness, try to exploit some things. If you give up the ball, at least you gave it up 30 or 40 yards down the field. So I don't have as much of an issue, but I do understand why there was some confusion with the center back passing options. I agree. And we've gone long and I have a lot more to say about this game, but I'm going to summarize it here in a couple quick sentences. Uh, These are non-tactical takeaways, but things that are important to note. Yunus Musa is now cap-tied, officially. He's played in four friendly games, which means he is a U.S. men's national team player. He was good in this game. He he had some mistakes in the first half, but he was good. And he was really good against Jamaica, and he was really good against Wales and Panama back in November. He's a really important player for the U.S., and he's going to be going forward as well. And then my other take quickly is we saw Sivachu. We hadn't seen him get a start before. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's going to be in competition with Josh Sargent. For that number one, number nine role, that spot. But he is another depth option and someone I'm curious to see more of. He had a really nice kind of flick for Christian Pulisic on Pulisic's, the lead up to that goal where Pulisic then draws the penalty, steps up and scores it. He did some nice things in this game. I don't think he was flawless, certainly, but notable that Musa is cap-tied and we saw another number nine option, yet another one. Uh, starting up top for the U.S. in this one. I really liked that layoff from Sibichu for Pulisic, who then picks it up and draws nice. the penalty, as yeah. you said. I liked it especially because in the first half, he goes for a back heel at one point and overhits it, and you can see him being mad at himself for overhitting it and just that sort of like, okay, I got to recalibrate, and then he does. And I think for Pulisic... He was almost surprised that that sort of level of trickery happens because he has to like, oh, the ball's there. And then he moves for it. Like Sibichu lays it off and then Pulisic starts his run. So Sibichu recognizes the opportunity even faster than Pulisic. And then it's a credit to Christian Pulisic that he uh, does and reads it really quickly, gets on that ball, draws the foul. I know there's an argument that he went down really easily. There was some question as to how much contact there actually was. I would say if you watched again, his right foot getting like very very briefly stuck or trapped the way it did it looks really weird because it looks like he throws his right foot out at the end of it and that's where the penalty happens what i would argue is because that foot getting just trapped for even like a quarter second a tenth of a second longer than it's supposed to be it changes your gait and the reason why it looks really weird when his right foot comes down is because he's trying to find the ground because where his body thinks the ground should be is not where it is because that right foot has been delayed if this makes any sense but basically it looks like he's like 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 you know when you're in a bad dream and you're trying to run and you can't run away joe that's a yeah. little bit what he looks like because his 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 gait has been altered so i think it's correctly given as a penalty but i understand why it looks weird in the moment but Pulisic getting in there, winning that ball, making something happen, and then really calmly just passing the ball into the goal for the second one. Uh, I liked his penalty. I liked really everything I saw from Pulisic in this game. I thought he was pretty willing to try stuff. You could tell he was pretty confident with Dest around him, with Musa around him, with Reyna around him. It almost felt like moments of like, oh, you tried that? Well, I'm going to try something too. And I am here for that when it comes to the U.S. national team. People trying to outdo each other with uh, technical ability is not a thing we've always seen from the U.S. national team. So four midfield attacking options all trying to do that at once, I am A-OK with. Yeah, let's get Dest, Pulisic, and Reyna all trying to outsauce each other. Dest <laughs> is going to win, obviously. We yeah. all know that. But, I mean, I'd, I'd watch that on ESPN. No problem. I'd watch the crap out of that. <laughs> uh, Joe, as you said, we have gone long. We haven't really talked about um, Ireland's goal. Kyle McGinn with a, with a smashed one. There are multiple people who maybe could have done better. Tim Ream, I think, stays too deep, then doesn't react to it well. I think the wind is a big part of this. I think Miazga ends up 
letting it hit his back. I think Anthony Robinson had been still trying to deal with an injury and wasn't able to kind of react the way he would. He certainly doesn't track McGinn for the goal. So that's not great. But I think still it's a U.S. win. It's a two to one win while trying a new system against a decent enough opponent. Certainly not like Brazil they're beating here, but you beat the opposition that's in front of you. Just tell the U23s who weren't able to do that. So I think overall my takeaway from this game and from the U.S. camp is I continue to feel positive about the U.S. senior team, if not maybe the youth teams behind them. I echo that completely. Yeah, the U.S. tried something different. It wasn't perfect, but it is a nice building block to build on. And the U.S. right now has a ton of really talented players that are really fun to watch. And that makes me happy, Taylor. There we go. Oh, we're ending on a happy note, Joe. That makes me that makes me happy. Hooray. <laughs> uh, quick mention for Luca De La Torre, who I thought was was really good when he came on. And I won't be surprised if we see more of him in future camps, a good 15 to 20 minute cameo with extra time added in there. Uh, but credit to Luca De La Torre for playing in the midfield and being a good midfield pivot. That was one of my question Questions about him after we watched him uh, playing abroad for Heracles, and I thought he did well. So uh, also Luca De La Torre having a good game. Lots of Americans doing lots of good things in this one. Uh, in your face, Northern Ireland. Joe, any other things you wanted to talk about from this game before we call this episode concluded? Brendan Aronson was also really good. Yeah. He was really, really good off the bench in both of these games. He... He and Tim Weah both, man. They're going to bring some awesome wing options for the U.S. if if Pulisic Arena can't go. Or maybe they're going to beat out one of those guys for those spots. I don't know. But, yeah, Brendan Aronson, really, really good for him in this one. Wow, Joe. You've done it. You have made me excited for the U.S. national team when I was very bummed out from the uh, failure to qualify for the Olympics. But you're right. There are so many young players, so many talented players coming through, and so many players that might not end up being first-team players or might not be consistent starters for the U.S. But Sibachu is a good example of this, or Siebachu. Uh Like, he does little things in those moments where you're like, oh, that's really good. What's going to happen next? And now I want to watch more of his games. I want him to be called in. I want to see how he develops in the team with the team, how he plays. Like, there's there are very good players that we already know are very good. And there are potentially very good players that I think are exciting to watch. And I think this team on the whole, this squad on the whole, the 30 to 50 players in the depth chart are mostly all pretty exciting for various reasons. And I think that's about as positive as we can be on the U.S. national team. So, Joe, I appreciate you bringing the positivity. I know you are finishing this episode to go record another podcast, so I appreciate you <laughs> being very generous with your time and going very long to talk about both of these games. Any other things to add before we call this one quits? No, I'm good, man. This All was right. fun. It's I'm so sad the U.S. didn't qualify. You know, I'm still going to watch the Olympics, but just not the U.S. play. The men's team, at least, play soccer. Go U.S. women's national team. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean— I feel I feel good. I feel encouraged. This was a fun show, Taylor. All right. Uh, what are you all talking about on MLS Assist today? Today, in our efforts to continue to ramp up before the MLS season starts, we are talking about new signings that have come into the league, trying to give people an idea of how these guys play and how they're going to fit into their teams. All right. And where Jason Christ should manage next. You going to talk about that, too? Correct. All right. We're going to lead with that. Actually. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, then, Joe Lowry, thank you for taking <laughs> all of the all of the time to talk with me today. You got it, man. Listeners, thank you all very much for listening. We will talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.